G'day, mate. Luke Ford here talking to a graduate student in history. Uh, Matthew, how do you pronounce your full, complete uh, name? Um, my name is Matthew Hobriel Cockerell. Uh, the last name's obviously English, middle name is Coptic Egyptian, so typical Amero Mutt, you could say, with weird combinations of ethnicities. It's kind of, it's kind of the Anglosphere Western world at this point, but I'm, I'm quite proud of it. Um, I'm a doctoral student in history at London School of Economics, more pertinently. Okay. But, but between you and me, between you and me, just Matt, Matthew, please. Okay, great. And how did you become interested in Holocaust denial? Well, I'm interested generally, I'll, I'll start like a higher level of generality. I'm interested generally in how uh, history, narratives about history shape the contemporary world, and also especially how bad narratives about history shape the contemporary world. So I'm interested on in this when it comes to the woke left, for example. Uh, the woke left um, has this pretty ridiculous misconception that peoples of European descent are the only ones who engaged in exploitation, woke cruelty, left. slavery, when these are uh, sadly universal human phenomena. And so I think in that respect, uh, sensible narrative about history debunk the woke left kind of anti-white male narrative. I also think sensible narratives about history debunk the far right kind of racist racialist message um, in terms of specifically that the Nazis were a great regime, that they were pro-white, that they um, uh, did not commit genocide against the Jews. And, and so um, this is kind of part of my broader interest, which is debunking false historical narratives that lead to bad contemporary politics, namely the Wignat neo-Nazi politics. Okay, so tell me more about your journey into studying Holocaust denial. So um, I've uh, been interested in German history for a number of years, and um, I also am interested in Arab history, and I speak uh, Arabic, and I, I learned Arabic um, uh, in living in the Middle East for a couple of years and also knew some growing up because my mom's an immigrant from the region. And um, because of my interest in German history and my language skills, I was brought into the study of uh, the connection between those two regions. So like the history of, of German Orientalist scholarship regarding the Middle East. And um, eventually I got into the question of Nazi German policy concerning the Middle East and the Arab world during the Second World War, which was kind of a new area of research in the last 10, 15 years, which is new and by academic standards, you know, um, move, things move very slowly. So um, within that framework, I started to read more about the Nazi Holocaust within the framework of looking at uh, the history of Nazi Germany uh, more generally. I started reading about the Holocaust and um, initially I looked into the, I didn't think a priori the claims have to be false. Um, there's a lot of things academia lies about for political correctness reasons, but you just investigate the claims for Holocaust denial and you find they are false um, by any reasonable empirical historical standard. Uh, obviously false, in fact. A little disappointing, yeah. I mean, really. When did you first start uh, reading the books? Did you start with books on Holocaust denial? I did, yeah. Um, so I read um, I read Hilberg's book. Um, I read Gerald Reitlinger's book, kind of the canon, and also like more contemporary work by like Peter, Peter Lungerich and others. So I read like the mainstream scholarship, and then uh, I, I read the denial material. And um, I find that almost all the denial material, the denial memes, are based on uh, lies by omission. 
They're either outright fabrications, but more commonly are lies by omission. So, for example, um, they have a meme about, oh, there was a soccer team in Auschwitz. How, and that seems very odd. Why there are inmates playing soccer in what is an extermination camp? But again, there's a lie by omission. Auschwitz was a vast complex with well over a million people of, of, of inmates of multiple ethnicities, and the soccer players were uh, British POWs. So that's an example of, of, of their lies by omission. They, they give a piece of evidence that isn't necessarily false, but they take it out of context. So having read the mainstream scholarship, I pretty clearly uh, saw through the denial um, memes. And I think a lot of them are constructed in bad faith at this point, frankly. Although I don't, when I debate deniers, discuss with them, I don't, I don't make it personal because I don't think that's productive. And I also, I could be, could be wrong. The person could believe this genuinely. So, but, but my, but in terms of my assessment of the scholarship, of the scholarship, if we can use that word as a whole, I think uh, a lot of it is based on lies by omission. Um, All right, that was on my end. That was my sound. Who who are the most important uh, Holocaust denial scholars that you've looked into? So the most important people in print, I'd say, are Carlo Matano and Germar Rudolph. Um, these are people who actually have some familiarity with the documents in the German language and some facility to construct arguments, <laughs> although I don't find their work compelling at all. I think that they're smart. I mean, to produce what they have, it takes intelligence, but... I think they're hopelessly biased at best and acting in bad faith at worst. Uh, who um, are they? I, I thought I was familiar with this genre, but uh, who are uh, these guys? The, the, the people who are most prominent right now are writing for the website holocausthandbooks.com. Uh, the, the reason that you're probably familiar with like David Irving, Mark Weber, yes. um, who are educated in history. These guys are not stupid, but they've, they've rejected denial more or less. David Irving, I'll send you this video after we talk. I have this uh, saved in my cheat sheet somewhere uh, related to these issues. But uh, David Irving has accepted essentially the, the mainstream story entirely at this point, uh, based on the evidence, not because he was intimidated by Jews. In fact, the, con the clip in which he says this, he's, he makes anti-Semitic remarks, and he talks about how they may have had it coming and things like this. But, but I mean, which obviously I find morally perverse, but it's, I don't think it's an in interesting to virtue signal about that. What is interesting is that he, and the evidence, has, has accepted the mainstream account. When, um, when, he when, when was this? Because for years he was kind of yeah. debunking it. So. Right, right. He was very proud. This was oh, a few years ago at the London Forum, a kind of far-right group in London. He, he basically accepts that the five to six million number is approximately correct. And he describes the lick. He even, he even implicitly acknowledges Auschwitz, uh, which was because he kind of had shifted. He, first he was a hardcore denier. Then he after his humiliating defeat in the Lips Lipstadt trial, he um, pivoted toward Auschwitz denial, where he said, okay, the Einsatzgruppen mass shootings happened, that, meaning the mass, for your audience who may not know, the mass shooting of Jews in the occupied Soviet Union, Jewish civilians, Irving acknowledged that. Then he acknowledged the extermination of the Jews sent to the um, Aktion and Reinhardt camps. So like Sobibor, Treblinka, Belzic, um, and Majdanek, but he didn't acknowledge Auschwitz, and it, he appears to have done so because he acknowledged the he acknowledged the numbers and also the murder of the Hungarian Jews, which happened at Auschwitz. So, yeah, he, seem, he seems to have acknowledged the whole story, which is, uh, you know, it's he's following the evidence. So I you can't 
you can't begrudge him that. And Mark Weber also has has uh, acknowledged at least uh, mass killings by the Einsatzgruppen and also uh, the extermination of Jews at the Reinhardt camp. So I think that part of the reason um, um, the anti-denial side is so compelling, if you will, to even to a layperson who has looked into this is, you know, there are a bunch of people on our side, the anti-denial side, who are pro-Nazi or sympathetic to Hitler or whatever, but they looked at the evidence and they accept this. Mark Weber, David Irving, among them. Because these guys are, you can, you can say their politics are perverse. They, I think they do have rather perverse tastes in politics, but they're smart guys who know German, and they've accepted the evidence on this. But, but Mark Weber is still routinely called a Holocaust denier. And, I mean, the guy's got a master's in history, and mm-hmm. I've read a lot of his work, and I've listened to a lot of his work. I'm not aware of him just making stuff up or... I mean, I may disagree with him about this or that, but he, he, from what I've seen, he, he has fidelity to the facts. Well, in an interview with Jim Rizzoli, um, who is, does not have fidelity to the facts, he's kind of a wild-eyed, he's kind of your stereotypic Park Avenue, uh, not Park Avenue, Hollywood neo-Nazi. Um, I, I kind of confused my, slurred, my slurs and cliches. But... Um, it, Weber said, no, Weber in the interview with this Holocaust denier said that Jews were exterminated in Treblinka and the Reinhardt camps. And he provided his reasons for believing it and also acknowledged the Einsatzgruppen. So uh, he, 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 I think the, that the slur directed at him is not, though, unfair entirely because he did espouse denial views in the 90s and 2000s. But to his credit, when he saw more documents, he eventually overcame his confirmation bias. And I respect that. I mean, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to virtue signal, but that, but if somebody admits they were wrong or changes their views, I I personally respect that. I think he had a debate with uh, Michael Shermer. Did you? Yes, back when he had the hardcore denial. Yeah, I did. Back when he had the hardcore denial views. Um, I I think one of the things that changed his mind about the the Reinhardt camps, at least, is the is a diary entry from Goebbels, which actually David Irving authenticated in the Russian archives, that clearly refers to the fact that Jews sent to the Reinhardt camp, so the second phase of the Holocaust, sending to these camps in Poland, Treblinka, Sobibor, Belzich, um, that Goebbels clearly refers to them being liquidated or exterminated systematically, these Jews. So, um, you know, if it's authentic and he's a high-level official, that kind of tilt was it proved a tilting point for Weber, um, it appears. And what kind of historian is Mark Weber from your studies? I don't know uh, enough about his background. I've I've conversed with him on the telephone. Uh, I find his sympathy for Nazism bizarre, but I don't. He knows history, so I'll talk to I'll talk to somebody who knows history. It's not interesting to me to virtue signal. This is a bad person for half an hour. I mean, okay, right, like. That's just boring and I think performative. Um, but but he he can he can talk fluently about the documentary evidence. The reason I don't label him as a as a top denier or whatever is I I don't know his views on Auschwitz, but but I think for the most part he's acknowledged that there was a genocide of the Jews. So I wouldn't I don't know if it's fair to put him in the camp of Matanya or Rudolf who deny that there was a genocide of the Jews, uh, even though it certainly was in the nineties and. Uh, the views he expressed, the IHR expressed back then, were certainly Holocaust denial views. But uh, Weber has obviously changed many of his positions. 
Um, I don't really know what else to say about that. But so the most prominent people writing right now, I think, are Matanyo and Germa Rudolph. And Wait, can I think you the spell most the names? Can you spell the names? I've not heard of these people. I can spell Rudolph's name, uh, G-E-R-M-A-R-R-U-D-O-L-F. Uh, Matanyo, I may have to look up. Um, so I don't. It's Italian name, and I don't speak Italian. Okay, Gamar so. Rudolph Holocaust. Okay. Yeah, he was a, he, so, a German chemist yeah. and convicted Holocaust. Yes, okay. yes. So, yeah, he's um, he's tried to shore up the forensic arguments of deniers that there that there were no residues of hydrogen cyanide or significant residues of hydrogen cyanide in the buildings we say were the uh, gas chambers. Um, his work, The Chemistry of Auschwitz, is, and I say this as a total layperson lay in chemistry, but although somebody who took chemistry classes, his work, uh, The Chemistry of Auschwitz, uh, strikes me as, as, as fatally flawed because the uh, whole argument, and I'll send you a, a, I don't have a link offhand, but I'll send you this after the interview and you can, you can look at it for yourself. His whole argument that, there, that the level of hydrogen cyanide in the um, gas chambers isn't significantly higher than the level of hydrogen cyanide in um, random parts of, of Auschwitz, right? In random in ran, in random areas. Um, his whole argument is predicated, is, is skewed by one sample in the other areas of Auschwitz that he admits could have been contaminated. And it's pretty clearly, if you look at it, a, like a brickwork that he himself gassed because he was trying to create a control sample and then it apparently got confused with his other samples. And you can infer this by the fact that he just says, oh, this may be, so if you, it, my point is, if you toss out the sample that Rudolph admits may have been contaminated, may be unreliable in his book, then his data actually proves <laughs> that, uh, he, it proves the point of the mainstream, that there are, is uh, significantly much more hydrogen cyanide in the gas chambers than in other parts of Auschwitz. And why would that be the case when uh, the gas chambers have been dynamited and they're exposed to the wind and rain in a way that other parts of the of the complex are not. Um, why do they have so much more hydrogen cyanide? Um, and if you again, if you omit the one um, sample that he admits may be contaminated, so maybe unreliable, he admits, um, then it's it proves our point. So I think his work is quite flawed and actually either quite biased or I mean I don't want to speculate about motives, but. Well, um, and he also has no training as a as a historian. He's he's a chemist. He has no training as a historian, but I, I don't I don't think that you need to have formal training. Uh, I think it's important to have uh, some kind of extensive training in archives and language. But I wouldn't say that you have to have a graduate degree or even any degree to be a historian. It's the more kind of natural, easy path. But but you do need to put in the work. Of course, you can't just be the LARPer online and say, I'm a historian, but I don't, but I would, I would allow for the possibility of informal credentials. Okay. Um, who was the other I, main guy aside from Gemma? Uh, Carlo Matano. Um, how do you spell yeah. that? The last name? I think M-A, yeah, let me, let me look it up. Matano? Um, he's an Italian guy, interestingly. Uh, Carlo Matano, Italian writer. Uh, yeah. Okay, that, that and Holocaust denier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That should be him. He's on the advisory board. Yeah, he's certainly a denier. He denies Jews were exterminated in these in these facilities. Um, so I would I would label him a denier. I mean, um, I actually debated at some point how should I label these people because I don't want to be like 
virtue signaling and saying, oh, you're so bad, because Denier has a pejorative. But I, I ultimately, I think, when they, oh, I, I think, though, Denier is better, because you, I think you're kind of cucking if you believe, as I do, that they're full of, their arguments are totally unfounded to call them revisionists at the end of the day, because that, right. that is such a yes. dignifying term. So I think Denier is, is the best, is the best choice. Um, now, have you heard about the new Israeli documentary called The Round Number, or questioning how we, we got to I've the 6 I've heard a little million. bit about that, yeah. Um, right, so questioning talk... you know, how we got to the 6 million, that's certainly legitimate uh, inquiry. Sure, I could talk a little bit about how I estimate the number of dead in the Holocaust. Right. Uh, and then I could talk about this. So uh, part of what was kind of um, uh, engaging intellectually in the experience of of getting involved in Holocaust denial as a historian is I, I sort of tried to reverse engineer what had happened in the books and say like, what is their methods? Uh, and deconstruct what, what, what the mainstream books said. What are their methods? How do we know the casualties? And um, the uh, really the best way of estimating the casualties is first with the, I don't know, are you familiar, um, Luke, with the, I think you probably are, with the main kind of elements of the Orthodox Holocaust account, like the, mass shootings phase the or no yes. are you not you want me to yes. okay uh, you are I mean, do, do what you, but but do just for your want. audience mm -hmm. so the 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 three the, there's three main stages to the holocaust there are mass shootings in the in the east so after the soviet union and pardon me the nazis in june of 1941 invade the soviet union um uh reinhard heydrich uh, commissions the, the einsatz group and these special action groups to comb out any people, any civilians that may be a threat to the Germans. So the Germans have conquered these areas of the Soviet Union and the Einsatzgruppe would follow the proper army, the Wehrmacht, and kill people who are a threat to the Germans. And eventually the Germans uh, identify all Jews, all Jewish civilians, men, women, children, as a threat uh, to their continued, um, as a threat to their military presence in the Soviet Union, they start to kill Jews uh, systematically, men, women, and children. And so the, how do we know how many people were killed by the Einsatzgruppen, for example? Well, the Germans produced action reports that were broadly circulated throughout the bureaucracy. And if you simply count up the number of people the Germans say they shot, it's about, it's, it's over, uh, it's about 1.2 million, um, give or take. So, and then in terms of how many people were killed in the concentration camps, this is largely based on on deportation statistics. So gaps in how many were deported versus how into the camps versus how many were found in the camp system at the end of the war. Because we have very good deportation statistics about how many Jews were, were, were on trains to the, to the camp system and then how many Jews were found at the end of the war. Um, as well as you have the, uh, you have the Rick, Ricard Corher report, which talks about, um, which talks about millions of Jews being, uh, having left Europe via special treatment, Zonderbehandlung, in the in the Operation Reinhardt camps. And we know from other Nazi documents from Himmler that special treatment means killing. And obviously, what does that mean, people might think, but it means killing. There's other documents from the Nazis that say special treatment is to be carried out by shooting or kill, or, or, or uh, hanging, and you know it, it clearly refers to killing. It's a code word for killing. It's defined as such in, other, in numerous other Nazi documents. So, um, Basically, we have deportation statistics. We have Nazi documents estimating the numbers that have been killed um, by the mass shootings and in the camps. 
And uh, this is how we arrive at, and also we have post-war versus pre-war census data and studies, and this is how we arrive at an estimate of about five to six million. In terms of, um, of the six million number, well, the idea of a round six million number or the idea that it can't be significantly lower, couldn't be five million or 4.9 million or 5.1 million. I mean, there is symbolism here and it's a sensitive issue, but people should be able to uh, ask questions about how do we know, first of all, how is the figure calculated? And second of all, could it be uh, significantly lower than that? Sensitive issue, but it's one that free speech should support. And so I'm, I'm supportive of the work of this documentary. I, don't, I haven't seen it. I don't know if it's even done yet, but um, I'm supportive of the work because, um, you know, it, 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 it may not be, it may be uh, a million or so lower. It may be, um, you know, we don't, we don't quite know that the, um, we, we can say with very high certainty that it's around, that it's approximately 5 million, but estimates start to get a little sketchy after that. Um, we were talking about people that may have died in ghettos, may have starved to death, may have been shot by the Romanians. But the, 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 the deportation statistics, the Einsatzgruppen statistics are very ironclad, whereas the number who starved in the ghettos or killed by the Romanians is a bit more dicey. So that's how you get a range of about five to six million as opposed to six million. Um, and, the, and the idea of like a clean round number is, I think, obviously dubious. Why would it be six million rather than 5.328743? So I think it's I think it's a reasonable thing to talk about. And as a Jew, um, as a Jew, how do you react to this sort of skepticism, if you will, of the of the idea of the of the of of exactly six million? And, yeah, well, obviously it wasn't exactly six million, mm -hmm. and I, I I understand Holocaust denial because the Holocaust has become the religion of the Western world. So I can understand a reaction to that. There was no Holocaust denial until the Holocaust was turned into the religion of the Western world. Like, well, go ahead. in terms of the religion, I would, I would reject the term religion because I think it, well, you know, I don't know how Jews perceive the Holocaust, but I do think remembrance is appropriate of dead relatives. And I, it, it certainly happened. So now if you're talking about like anachronistic uses of the Holocaust by like woke people to say, all white men are bad because all, I mean, that's stupid. We should say it's stupid, but I, I think remembrance can be done in a dignified and compelling way. And it doesn't need to be turned into a political football. Well, is it is it used as a political football. Yeah, I agree with a you. Of and, it and, and it's become like they have a Holocaust museum in, in the United States. They have Holocaust museums, I assume in Canada, all sorts of countries where there never was a Holocaust is mandatory mm -hmm. Holocaust education in many American states. I think that's ridiculous. And I can understand why many people would react very strongly against that and, and why there are you know, 1,000 films about the Holocaust and, and nothing like that about other people's genocides. I think whenever you, mm -hmm. when you overstate any issue and just pound it you know, into people and, and use state money to, to build institutions and to mandate education about this one genocide, it's, it's understandable that there'd be reaction against it. There wasn't a Holocaust denial until the Holocaust was raised. That's actually a very interesting point that I was thinking about the other role day, the last in Western point. civilization. The Holocaust so after, was, yeah, yeah. after the Second World War, 
Holocaust denial wasn't really a thing. I mean, if you look at post-war Germany, for example, the issue just wasn't talked about very much. Um, the Americans and, and other occupying forces had initially, if you look at like the, you know, even things like the Morgenthau plan, they initially had planned for very aggressive denazification and shaming. And you see some residue of that with like the films of people being, Germans being brought to concentration camps, but they, they dropped this quite quickly. They didn't want to demoralize the Germans, the, the Western powers didn't want to demoralize the Germans because they wanted, the, they saw them as a future ally against the Soviet Union. And the Germans themselves, this was not a big conversation in German, in German political culture until the Auschwitz trials in the 1960s. This was just not talked about much in the 40s and 50s. It wasn't denied, it just wasn't talked about much. When it was acknowledged, it was kind of said, okay, those were sadists, uh, a few sadists who did this. Uh, this wasn't an expression of the German people. So actually, when the Holocaust became more prominent in uh, Western culture, it, 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 that is when denial happens. Yes, it doesn't, denial isn't a thing in the 1950s, for example. Right, it's only it until isn't. the Holocaust is raised to sacred status and, and this mm -hmm. becomes pounded on people that you but, then but, but, but I, okay, so there there's two even things. A, wait, let me finish my point. There wasn't right. even, if you talked about a Holocaust in, in 1945 or 48 mm -hmm. or 49, people wouldn't know what you're talking about if you would, right, unless you're talking about World War II. The idea that there was this special thing that gets the name Holocaust for Jewish suffering mm -hmm. when 55 million people died in World War II, mm -hmm. I can understand why a lot of people would have a negative reaction to that. And what happens when you have a negative reaction to something? You just start debunking. So I, I understand the, the Holocaust denial impulse. Finish. Hmm. So let me try to think about this. I look, the deniers are right that this issue is politicized and that it's used in a disingenuous way. It's used to, um, it's used against Palestinians. They try to yes. say that the, that Haj Amin al-Husseini, like the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, played some seminal role in the Holocaust is not supported by the facts at all. But that Netanyahu said that several years ago. So it's, it is used propagandistically and denying that is, is ridiculous. On the other hand, I think we're losing our moral bearings if we look at like the rounding up and extermination of kids and so on and say, and just shrug with indifference to that. I think we've, without like not in a non-virtue signaling sense, I'm not saying people have to be obsessed with it, but um, I think if one is going to debunk it, as you say, one should make sure the facts are there and they're, they're not. So I, I, I understand what you're saying and I agree it's heavily propaganda. I think Norman Finkelstein uh, made points to this effect that were quite right. But I also, I also think there's a genuine concern for people whose like grandmas were murdered or great grandparents. I think so many Jews were murdered in this that like, if you look at the percentage of the population in, in Jews in Europe, it's quite extraordinary, the proportion that were murdered. So I understand why there's concern about it. I think the best response is to criticize the, um, the political use of it and aggressively so and, and, and rather than engage in denial. So I, I don't understand the impulse to denial, to be honest. I understand the impulse to call out politicization and victimology based on this, but I don't understand the impulse to say, oh, your, your um, great grandmother or mother of someone who was sent to Treblinka is really alive or in Fiji or whatever. I don't oh, understand I, that. I, I understand it because truth is not a sacred value when you're, when you're fighting for, for your people or for what you want in the world. I mean, do, do politicians or anyone trying to make social change, do, do they restrict themselves to the truth? 
uh, you you go for that which you go for the jugular and so i'm not shocked when politicians mm -hmm. lie i'm not shocked when activists mm -hmm. lie I, i'm not shocked well, i live in a more when people lie I, I live in a probably a somewhat more abstract world where i'm <laughs> as a as a doctoral student in history where i'm probably, right. i'm looking at documents i'm looking at the world from the eyes of somebody living in 1942 when i engage this subject right I'm not looking at the politicization of this in 2021 as much. Although obviously anyone who is slightly com who is non-comatose knows that it is highly politicized. Of course it is. And it's, and, and, the, and the most reprehensible politicization of it is to justify um, cruelties against the Palestinians or to obscure the historical record of, of ethnic cleansing of, of Palestinians after the Nakba. But I, I, I guess we just are at a loggerheads here because I don't, um, I just don't understand the impulse to deny, really. Like, what? do you because understand these people the didn't have anything. These, people, people these victims didn't have, look, these victims didn't have anything to do with, like, some woke person <laughs> invoking this cynically today, you know? Well, well think about when you're just like, so many of them are just Polish, like, you know, uneducated Poles who just love their family they didn't have anything to do with zionism or or this stuff you know so i'm kind of looking at from the victim's perspective not the people who use that like not like alan dershowitz using it today like that's obviously fake and okay we can call that out we should but i guess from the perspective i guess you're in a spiritual sense you're not just attacking i get the impulse to attack people who are using this cynically or have created like a cottage industry out of it i understand that but i don't understand but you're also in a spiritual sense, not in a sense that should be illegal. I, I'm totally against lies against denial and so forth. We can talk about those too. Um, so I think those are ridiculous and in the front of free speech and free inquiry. Um, I'm emphatically opposed to those, but nevertheless, I think there's some moral culpability that shouldn't be cashed out in any kind of law, but there's some moral culpability when you're like thumbing your nose at the people, at these people in history who suffered so much. Um, you don't have to be interested in it. I'm not saying you have to care about it. You shouldn't have to care about it. But you shouldn't, uh, without evidence, deny that they suffered and died. You know, that's my view. I'm, but it should be legal to do that. It shouldn't right. be illegal. You, you we have to have free to, speeches. You, yeah. you want people to fight by the Marcus of Queensbury rules. But uh, I'm, I'm talking about reality. <laughs> you've got you've got empathy for the for the victims of the Holocaust, as do I. Uh -huh. But have you ever put yourself into the shoes of groups who have different interests than, say, Jews, such as, yeah, Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims. They yeah. have different interests. They're, there's a piece of land, and, and Jews have their claims to it, and, and Arabs have their, their claims for mm -hmm. it. And But only one group is going to win. Only one group is going to have sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And in the, the course of that, that conflict, everything gets used to further your group's aims. I mean, that's mm -hmm. how the real world works. What's the most important thing for any nation is to survive. And so for Jews, the erection of the, the modern Jewish state of Israel is a, is a matter of, they feel, the survival of their people. And for, for Palestinians, they also feel it as a matter of survival. And no sane people quibbles about matters of accuracy and truth in a fight for survival. But that's how I understand it. Sure, but I just don't... so. I do have, I have much more, actually have much more familiar, because of my, my background also living in the Arab world for a couple of years, I have much more familiarity with, um, with the Arab side of this than the Israeli side and more, much more sympathy also. 
So there, in Arab, the Arab world, you're, one thing you're, that's interesting that you that I think your comment kind of feeds into is if you go like to the souks, like in the Arab world, like kind of moderately intellectual culture, it's full of, if you go to like the, the these like little bookstores, you know, um, it's like full of, <laughs> they have Hitler stuff, pro-Hitler yeah. stuff, denial stuff. It does. But I don't, I don't say they're evil for that. I, I, I have some understanding of what, what the, I think those are obviously bad views, but they're, they're, this is an expression of their outrage over the ethnic cleansing in the Nekba, right? Exactly. This is an expression of their, of their, uh, of their kind of contempt for people they view as an enemy. It isn't, it, it isn't that they are just sadistic people, right? And yeah. we have to understand that. On the other hand, I don't think if, if, if uh, an Arab friend of mine, you know, um, in, if a Palestinian friend of mine were to say, were to ask me what my views of this are, I'm not going to condescend to him and say, I don't know, I think, um, Mike Enoch's right about this. No, I would say this happened, <laughs> but it doesn't have, but it's propagandized. It's obviously propaganda. I mean, you'd be in, I think, I, look, I just don't understand why can't we just say this happened. It's really terrible. It's propagandized and it has nothing to do with white Americans. White Americans said, no, it's just absurd. Like the, the way this is used anachronistically is quite absurd. I don't think we need to um, uh, validate deniers other than defending their free speech rights, which is very important. To that extent, we need to, but but we don't need to validate their claims uh, that we that I think you agree are false. Uh, we simply need to say this episode of history has been propagandized shamelessly. Um, but I think again, I separate I, I separate between some like. Polish grandma, Polish Jewish grandmother who was vaguely literate, who was murdered because of conspiracy theories in 1942 from, um, and just wanted to be with her family from like some Israeli using the, who's like, you know, had a very comfortable life using this as propaganda. I mean, those are just totally different, uh, expressions. You know what I mean? Like I just, I just, so, and I think denial attacks both of them and I only want to attack the second person, right? If that makes sense. Because I just think this is totally different phenomena, you know. On the other hand, I, as I say, I understand the, um, I understand the impulse to take away this as a weapon, by uh, as a propaganda weapon by uh, okay. people in, Pal in in Jordan or Lebanon, and, and it's all over the place in the Middle East. In moderately intellectual discussion, it is everywhere. Like, <laughs> and, and my friends, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to get more specific as if they if they apply for some kind of Western job, I don't want to ruin their lives, their prospects of this. But like my friends in the region say, even people who seem liberal, like there are liberal people in the Levant in, in like Jordan and Lebanon, even by moderately liberal people, not like extreme liberal by Western science, but liberal people, tolerant people. These aren't the most fanatical areas of the region, but they, they'll all of a sudden say sympathetic, make sympathetic noises about Hitler. And I mean, it's not about some reading of history they have. It's just an expression of, contempt for the Israelis and uh, expression of pain about the history. So I think, but I don't think it's productive uh, because they're my friends and because I'm sympathetic to their cause. I don't want to encourage something that I think hurts them politically. I think they should say, why is this propaganda is rather than engage in denial. And you actually have an opposite political correctness in the Arab world, interestingly, because I, I talked to, not going to use names again, but I talked to professors, um, uh, at a university in Amman, Jordan, who have looked at the evidence and concluded this happened and don't want to talk about 
right? Because they're afraid their their students will say you're some equivalent of like some Israeli toady, you know, because you're validating their story. But but they're they're intellectuals. They've they've they speak German. Why would they? They shouldn't lie about this, surely, right? Or you think they should? It depends. Uh what's in their best interest if 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 there was a five percent chance that they would be, be assassinated then I, I think they should well they're not going to be assassinated for that of course not they're not going to well, be assassinated. Well, what are the repercussions that they could become the repercussions shunned? are that people will be students will, will react very negatively to them to yeah. them like teaching yeah they're not going to be killed like it's the things the free speech issues are like in in a place like jordan for example are are you going after the the government or are you publicly ridiculing Islam or Christianity for that matter? That you can get in trouble for that too, because they have a Christian minority that is unlike my maternal uh, relatives in Egypt, the Jordan actually protects the we, we're not treated well. Jordan actually protects the Christian minority pretty well. So but but you're not gonna get in trouble for having saying Holocaust is real. You're not gonna get fired. You're gonna get ugly looks at you, really. I mean, but it's interesting how it's just interesting how the political correctness works the other way in like Lebanon or, or Jordan, you know? Yeah. You're not getting fired or, or much less killed for that now. Right, but but circumstances could could change. Like if there was an ISIS attack, uh, they they might become much more likely targets. You really don't want to get on the wrong end of the people around you. I mean, that's dangerous for your livelihood, it's dangerous for for your just being alive, it's dangerous for your children's marriage prospects. It, most people, mm -hmm. you know, take great care to maintain at least a neutral or positive view of them by the people around them, and it would be, it would be, almost suicidal to value truth over your own welfare. Mm. In that that situation. Well, I don't think. It's, I mean, it's, there are also in this situation. I understand your point. I think in this situation, it's less extreme. If a professor becomes very anti-Islam in jordan now that's something you want to keep quiet about if but if the professor believes in the holocaust or, you know, that's not gonna it'll it'll get eye rolls and nasty looks and maybe but it's not going to um destroy his or her career or much less engendered violence you know people wouldn't think that's justified um it's just this like there's this there's this um it's a way of saying fuck you to israel that's what i think exactly i mean it's ubiquitous um in in like if you go to the little bookstores that are and one thing i really like about the arab world by the way that the levant in egypt at least uh, is that there's this kind of there's a, a reading culture that i think we don't have as much in the united states anymore in terms of bookstores everywhere right little bookstores shabby bookstores dilapidated books like that's everywhere you know like coffee shops and you, you grab a uh, beaten book and you go to the coffee shop i like this part of their culture but these bookstores always like not always but kind of the vast majority of the time have this Holocaust denial stuff in Arabic, you know, or like pro Hitler stuff. But, but I don't view that as serious. I view that as just an expression of contempt for Israel. And I don't, I don't view it as productive. I don't hate people who are involved in this, but you know, and I understand the impulse even, but I don't think it's productive. And I think they're, they don't know who their enemy is because if you, if you engage in Holocaust denial, you are saying, Okay, I, I, these people who were murdered are my enemies, and they're not. You know, they're, their enemies are people who are are like wealthy, um, uh, comfortable um, Jews uh, who are engaged in um, in, um, in in Zionism um, and so forth. 
um, they're not Jewish people who died in the early in the early to mid twentieth century. You know, uh, do you accept that different groups have different interests? Of course they do. Right. So if different groups have different interests, then they, they I don't think it's very... in their interest. It may be pretentious to say that as a American half Egyptian, but I don't think it's I don't think Holocaust denial has served the Palestinian cause at all. I think it's it's just like the reaction of a wounded animal more than a strategy. Well, Holocaust denial operates on many different IQ levels. So many people think that uh -huh. Holocaust denial is all moronic because the scholarship behind it is so shoddy. But it's, yeah. it's operating with different messages for different IQ levels. So for, for the <laughs> under 100 IQ level, the message is it didn't happen. For the 100 to 120 <laughs> IQ level, the message is, you know, it happened, but it wasn't as significant as they say. And then the message for the over 125 IQ crowd is, yeah, it happened and we want it to happen again. So you've got all these different mm -hmm. levels of, of message for depending on the IQ level of who they're talking to. Like uh, when, when a politician speaks, he, he needs to be understood by the, the 90 IQ, the 95 IQ. And so he's going to say all sorts of things that he wouldn't say if he was speaking to a plus 130 IQ crowd. And so, too, with the, the Holocaust denial, the, the smart ones know that it happened. They just want it to happen again. But it's socially, mm -hmm. it's generally unacceptable to say that out loud, that you want it to happen again. So instead you say, oh, I'm just questioning, you know, I'm just challenging okay. certain historical orthodoxy. Let's, let's say this another way. What, do you, what bad things from the Palestinian perspective <clears throat> or from the American perspective, the Wignet perspective even, what bad things would happen? if they just acknowledge the Holocaust happened? What, 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 what kind of, because I, I just, this is why I, I, I've, I'm exasperated by this because I don't understand why it would affect the Palestinian cause at all. You're exasperated because um, you're not putting enough effort into empathizing with these people. What bad things would agreed. happen? They would lose a punching bag. They would lose a tremendous source of energy and gleeful amusement, and they would lose an opportunity to burn their bridges to polite society, to signal to their compadres how committed they are to the to the cause. So, emotional well, polite society is huge. in these circles, unless there's a, if you're in in, in Beirut or or, or or Amman, like polite society does not, or Cairo, polite society does not would not exclude you for, on the basis of engaging in Holocaust now. It would not. No, I'm talking uh, about American Wignats. Okay, sure. Yeah. So they get to signal to each other that they are more hardcore. Like you can't get much more hardcore than than denying the Holocaust. So they get more prestige ah, okay. with their fellow. Right, Wignats. because because like I, this is my sense listening to like it's a speculation. But my sense listening to Mike Enoch, for example, is you know if I were in his shoes, if I admitted this is true or likely true, I mean he at this point. So back in the day, if he's working as an IT guy, or whatever he did, I don't remember what he did. I read like an article about him. So I, I I read a little bit about it. Interesting background, but some some I think he had like more prestigious stuff, but doesn't matter. But back in the day when he was trying to be a member of the mainstream society, obviously engaging in Holocaust denial would be a brash thing to do and a risky thing to do. But now I think affirming the Holocaust would be the risky thing for him to do because he'd lose his his he'd audience. His audience. He'd, he'd lose his yeah. livelihood. He would lose his power and influence. Like, like Enoch gets to be gets to be number one in a certain world. And all you have uh, to do is extend a little empathy. So you think this is absurd, but you just have to put a little bit of effort into it and you can understand things from his point of view. 
He is number one in his world. He is Commander Enoch. Like he is a big deal. He has status. He has a livelihood. Yeah, yeah he does. He may have access to, to women. He is loved and revered. He has places he can go stay, you know, all over the world, maybe all over the United States. And that's taken away if he acknowledges And that's taken away if he acknowledges the Holocaust. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's actually a very interesting way of, of, of putting it. I don't think it justifies denial, though, at all. Like, I, I don't know if that's what you're saying, but, but I think it is interesting to put yourself into his shoes. But right, for right. me, at least, I mean, this sounds so fucking pretentious and virtue signaling. But for me, at least, like, I don't know if he, he thinks this is true or not. So let's, let's, but if I, if I were a neo-Nazi or something, and I knew I had to keep denying this, and I realized it was true, I did the research and realized it was true, or almost certainly true, it would wear on me to lie, like, every fucking day. Like, for me, at least, I'm not saying I'd never lie, but, you know, I was, I, I told you the truth, but I was tempted because the excuse is so fucking stupid. I was tempted to lie to you right. about the reason exactly. I was late for interview. So I'm, I'm not saying, oh, I'm, I don't right. understand, but, but I don't believe I would be constitutionally capable of getting up and lying, like, every day about but but hundreds exhausted. thousands thousands of people do that in the western world right now it seems pretty obvious yeah that's true I the woke stuff, yeah levels. they lie yeah so the woke you're right the woke stuff people pretend to believe things they don't yeah that's actually a fair point they lie constantly constantly yeah, that's true. and and it, it it wears on some of them but i mean there are all sorts of areas where you simply can't that's a very good counterexample. I have to concede that that's an excellent counterexample. Like, like I assume you want a career in academia, right? Uh-huh. So you can't do anything that would uh, destroy that. And so if you said the truth about all sorts of you know, issues, maybe the most important issues confronting mm -hmm. the Western world, you would not get a career in academia and you would be shunned by every friend you've made in academia. So you have well, to yeah, keep that, quiet. So, let, 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 I agree with that. But let's, let's, so first of all, I don't agree if the claim is that, so there's one thing I 100% agree with. So the first thing I 100% agree with is, are there a bunch of things that you have to lie about to keep your job and how the Western world is made? 100% politically sensitive issues. We all know what those are. But I don't, I, I don't, I honestly don't think that immigration, for example, will destroy the Western world. I don't believe, I mean, we could debate that. That's a whole separate issue, but I don't buy into the whole ideology, but there are, there are true things that we cannot admit because of woke power. In terms of what I want to do, I'm looking more at continental Europe, um, which is, in, in terms of the woke stuff, is not as bad. I mean, Edward Dutton, who has far more, you know, I don't, I don't agree with hardly anything he says about, about the right political order, but he has a, an academic position in Finland. So I think people would be surprised like how much better continental Europe is compared to the Anglosphere, like Australia, Britain, United States, Canada. This is the the center of the rot uh, when it comes to woke censorship. Um, uh, continental Europe is not as bad in my experience and in, in my correspondences. I think people will be surprised by that, but it's true. The English-speaking world is the center of this stuff. How um, does... But, uh, but you, you, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. But... but, but, but um, what you say, though, is actually, I have to just kind of take a deep breath, clear my throat and say, yeah, that's a really good point. Because people do lie constantly, right? To keep their, in bourgeois spaces, you have to just lie all the time to keep your job now. In, yeah, in I like mean, all sorts America. of jobs. You have yeah. to lie. No, really, like, any job, if, if, if you're like a working stiff, 
you don't need to lie. I, I don't imagine truck drivers need to. Although who knows, the woke makes it they do at some point. But I, I don't. It doesn't the more seem prestigious to me that the, job, the more pressure exactly, you have to the lie. more lying you have to do. The more and lying you have to yeah, do. Yeah, I mean that's a really good point. So maybe it's just on autopilot to such an extent that I don't even think about right, it. Right, people much. don't even think about all sorts of obvious. And maybe that's what Mike is doing with Holocaust now. It's like an autopilot. Right, because it's once really you do something point. once, like the first time you commit adultery. If you've been, say, faithful to your spouse for eight years, the first time is probably difficult. But I would expect by the 15th time, it's not so difficult. Yeah. yeah. And so the yeah, know, I first time so. to tell you serial adulterers difficult. who are just lying, all, who are just living right. lies all the time. And they're probably not even conscious of the fact. I'm just, right. thinking, I'm just thinking of like the lies we tell in the West for, as the great example you point out. They're probably not even con- like fully conscious in a moral sense of the fact that they're lying. It's like if you're a nine-year-old who's never lied to his or her parents, there'll be like a fear. There'll be a moral, um, a moral um, a dilemma. There'll be mm-hmm. agony. But like by the time you're 15 and you're <laughs> out smoking pot all the time, you're it just is autopilot, right? And you don't even you don't even think of it as an expression of contempt for your parents or dislike um, or even disdain, you know. So, yeah, I, I, I just have to acknowledge that you made a very interesting point. And I may, I may look at them in a different light at this point because, yeah, people lie constantly in the West now. And I think it's sad, though. I, I don't think we need to do it. I'll say that. I'm going to go more, be more explicit with my views once, I have a, once I'm in a safe place, as it were, um, huh. and have a more established. That's what everyone uh, says. If I'm just going to lie until I get this safe place, and then I'm going to I'm not lying, the though, bro. I'm, not, I'm just not, I, don't talk, I refuse to talk about it. I haven't lied to you. I haven't said okay. something I don't believe. Okay. You, you can't claim I've said something I, I haven't believed. No, I haven't I have not told you anything I don't believe. No, I, yeah, I, fair. I, no, I, I understand, though, you're, you're referring you know to a general point. phenomenon. But what I, what I try to do, I, I can't say, I'm, the system is like aspirationally totalitarian, right? Yeah. It's not totalitarian practice because we can talk and so on. Soft. But it's soft. The, soft totalitarian. Well, whether it's soft or hard, it's aspirationally a totalitarian. It, wa- it wants to invade thought right yeah it wants to invade private conversation it doesn't just seek to control um public so like for example my girlfriend is is russian if you go to russia uh russia is an authoritarian society you cannot publicly express and if you have if you have a prestigious job you cannot publicly express criticism for the regime or you you may lose your job there even are rare cases of people being being murdered but Russia doesn't, the Putin regime doesn't have a totalitarian aim to like control what people are saying in a bar or in a private conversation. They don't, that isn't something that is scrutinized, whereas the woke ideology does seek to do that. So it, it actually, in my view, goes beyond authoritarianism in, in terms of the aspiration. Now, the reason that in practice it ends up being very soft in some cases compared to historical examples is I think we still have considerable political and institutional residues of a free society so that they've been limited in that regard i don't think they're being limited though by um uh by their goodness you know or by their 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 kind of sentimental attachment to the rule of law or individual rights i think we saw in the summer of love you know like they're willing to kill right or condone killing of people of all races who who um stand up to them right yeah, the strong take what they want and the weak can do what they must. It's the way the world has always been. And and the woke I, have power. The woke have power think, and they take what they want. I think that's a very, very, very 
common theme of history. I am not so cynical as to think that's inevitable. I think liberalism has involved um, liberalism and, and also human rights doctrine uh, since the Second World War. There has been, there is something in this tradition I wish to defend that involves the powerful voluntarily ceding some of their power to exploit or to be cruel to the weak. I think the West has achieved this to a great extent. Um, that whereas the weak, like let's say some immigrant uh, from a foreign country comes to be to, to, to be your maid or something or to clean, like the, the way such a person would be exploited 200 years ago is not how they're exploited today. There, there is a sense that this person should be treated with kindness and respect, you know, uh, like a guest worker, hypothetical guest worker in Britain or the United States. So I think liberalism has uh, has tempered this, this um, tendency, which as you say is quite right, of the weak to be exploited by the powerful, which is a very, uh, you, you call it almost a law of history, I think. Uh, it's, yes. I don't think there are quite laws, but it's, it's as close to laws as almost anything. But I think we're moving, we've moved past that in the last few centuries with the Enlightenment and liberalism and, and human rights ideology as well. I want to reject that, but I understand the force of what you're saying too. It's, it's obviously this is a human tendency and it is a seminal historical theme. Seminal historical view. So, are there any Holocaust deniers or Holocaust revisionists who you think have made contributions? Knowledge. Well, David Irving, of course, has made contributions to yes. knowledge about about his of history. I mean, I don't know. You know, even even today, um, look, he he's tendentious. He when it comes to this Holocaust stuff, he also his book on Dresden is terrible. The way he estimates casualties is is completely outrageous but he has contributed to like like i mentioned earlier the the goebbels diaries he was the first to authenticate the um the glass plates uh that contained actually damning references to the to the extermination of the jews in the Reinhardt camps irving can authenticate this irving um was the first person to find the private papers of adolf eichmann um from his time in argentina he's found important historical documents i mean and I also think that Hitler's war, for all of its flaws and bias, um, is important because it's it's the only book by a competent writer. There's kooks who write books like this, but Hitler's war remains the only book by a competent writer that expresses the war from the German point of view. So, and I think that's important. And I have no sympathy for the German point of view in the war. And that's not virtue signal. That's just true, right? I think uh, that I have sympathy for the Soviet point of the view of the war, actually. Uh, far more than the Germans, but Hitler's war is important because I believe truth is arrived at dialectically, and so to to arrive at the truth, it's important to see what was the, what was the German perspective on the war, and 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 so I think it's an important book in that regard. Um, his book on Rommel was a serious contribution as well, and um, there, there was a book I haven't read by Irving, but I think it's pretty well regarded even now by historians about. I think it's about the um, uh, the German nuclear program. So he did make contribute, and, and this was not a controversial point a few decades ago. Like before his his fiasco with with Lipstadt, the, the kind of common view among Western historians was like, yeah, the guy has crackpot views on Hitler. He has a weird sympathy for Hitler, but he's really smart. He knows his stuff, and his books are interesting for that reason. He always finds important new documents. That was kind of the take on Irving. 30 years ago. Now it's, he's a denier and he's all these bad things, but I, I don't have that much sympathy for him because he brought this lawsuit against Lipstadt. Why did he bring the lawsuit when she called him a Holocaust denier? Right. I mean, that was a foolish move. Very foolish. 
you know, but did, did he make contributions to history? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie and tell you he didn't. Did it's lying. Yeah. yeah. Did you see the movie Denial? I did. And I, so, I so David Irving is a good looking guy, but they play him with someone who looks like a creep, you know, uh -huh. and, and they, they play Deborah Lipstadt with this, you know, gorgeous Hollywood actress. Uh, I mean, I, I enjoyed the movie, but it was obviously highly yeah, that, that part was really silly. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, when he was, I'm not going to comment on uh, a lady's appearance, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. But in terms of Irving, when he was younger, he was a good looking guy and he was an extraordinarily gifted public speaker. I mean, he may have even, he was, a, he could write really well. He may have even been a better public speaker than he was a writer. I mean, if you listen to, I mean, he's lying sometimes, but if you listen to him speak, gosh, he can, he really has an ability to do that. Um, not all of his stuff is banned, which is stupid, but and I'm against that, by the way. And so when I say, I'm not lying, like if I were lying, I'd say, no, yeah, ban him. He never did anything. No, I, I say that he was at best just extremely contentious and so emotionally invested in this that he distorted evidence and at worst he lied. But despite that, I think there are other historians who've done that, first of all, no question, who are not dismissed. And second of all, he did make, in spite of these flaws and this perversity, he made contributions. And people, if you, if you talk to historians specific, in specific terms, not to say, what do you think of Irving, but ask about XYZ thing he did, no one really denies, I don't think, that he made contributions, that he um, not only spurred debate, but found, uh, found, has found important documents. You know. So, are there any other Holocaust revisionists uh, or, or denialists who have made contributions of which you're aware? I don't think so. No, I think it's just Irvin. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of. Yeah, I, I, like, like you mean significant contributions? That I think inform how we understand history. Do you think David like, Cole has changed the course of scholarship? I don't agree with that at all. No, I think Cole's work is quite shoddy. Yeah, um, I disagree with that. Like, I, 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 look, Cole, Cole's whole work is premised on this absurd idea that, okay, so a building that has been reconstructed is not suited to gas people. Yeah, okay, sure. But that doesn't really mean, what does that mean? Because he, he analyzes it. So there, there, are two, there are two kind of forensic claims that Cole, Cole makes. First of all, he talks about there's more residue of hydrogen cyanide in the delousing chambers than the gas chambers. Well, that, that's easily answered because it takes far more um, hydrogen cyanide to kill lice than to kill human beings. And that's not me saying that. That's every authority uh, on the matter, including authorities from before the um, from before uh, the Holocaust. There are German sources that that describe the amount of hydrogen cyanide needed to kill lice versus to kill people in these um, in in the euthanasia program, I think you're probably aware that the Germans killed yes. before the Jews, yeah, with gas. So it, this is not controversial. So that that point is wrong. Then the second point he makes is that this building, Crema One, that they say killed Jews, is not suited for killing Jews. Well, it was a reconstruction. Everyone knows that. It wasn't denied that it was a reconstruction. Maybe in like the 60s or 70s, the Soviets. That's pardon me, the, the communist Poles denied that, but. Francis Peeper, the guy who was in charge of Auschwitz and was back then, never denied this was a reconstruction. So yeah, it's going to be the building is going to look fake if you scrutinize it because it is it's a it's not an original, right? Um, because the Germans destroyed the original. So I don't I don't 
Cole's a nice guy. I've talked to him before. Um, I don't, interpersonally, he's fine, but I don't, I don't see him as having contributed to history. I, I see him as, I don't, I don't want to say be too mean, but I, I see him as having kind of delusions of grandeur, thinking he had done more than he had. Um, I mean, it's great that he clarified, I suppose, that this building isn't real, but, you know, it wasn't, this was never denied, right? Yeah. The building was a reconstruction. So I know I don't, I don't think Cole's work is a contribution. Although Cole is one of these people who's, a, he doesn't deny the Holocaust as a whole. He just denies Auschwitz. So he acknowledges that there was a genocide of Jews in the, uh, in the mass shootings in Einsatzgruppen and also the Reinhardt camp. So he just denies Auschwitz, the, the extermination of Auschwitz. So he, he accepts there was a genocide of Jews. He thinks just Auschwitz is, is not true. I'm thinking about an analogy to Holocaust denial that is true for virtually every nation. So every nation, to the extent that it thinks about its history, thinks about a highly distorted, uh, airbrushed version of their history. So American history is this, you know, wonderful triumph of freedom. And, you know, French history, I'm not French, but I'm sure it's, you know, wonderful and stirring. And so virtually every nation does almost the... (laughs) verging on the equivalent of Holocaust denial because there's mm-hmm. no attention paid to, you know, all the people that they slaughtered. It's just all about, mm-hmm. you know, our group was the victim. And so I, I'm just thinking out loud to you now. I haven't considered It's really this interesting. Point. Yeah, go ahead, though. Yeah, but I'm just thinking out loud to you. It, it does not every nation do something in effect that, that's the equivalent of Holocaust denial. They're denying, I wouldn't say they the don't think about, they don't consider... All, all the genocides that their people carried out. That's I wouldn't say of- the equivalent because not all nations have tried to wipe out an ethnic group. You, know? you sure? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there's any people that hasn't tried to slaughter another people. Like in a systematic, we'll talk about slaughter. That's a different question. If you're talking about a systematic attempt to wipe out an ethnic group in an organized fashion, well, you can that always has, you can always add. That's what I mean. Jewish groups do all the time. Sure, so like, you're right. The Holocaust is special because they were tracked on trains. You know, but slaughter mm-hmm. is being just an endemic part of the human condition. I, I do think. I just think. I do think genocide is different than um, mere slaughter atrocities. Maybe you don't accept that, but I, I genuinely do. Again, like we have to in this world where there's political correctness, um, say, okay, when are you lying? But I, I honestly just. I see a moral differentiation uh, there. On the other hand, your point is is quite right that um, you know the Germans kind of um, really not since the end of the war, by the way, but since um, the '68 or generation, really um, the kind of the the German boomers repudiate their parents and grandparents and make the Nazi atrocities against uh, Jews and Slavs a salient part of their political culture, and now. Uh, there really is a sense of of, uh, of cultivating shame about the German history about, among Germans. Um, so that's quite right that the, the other nations don't have this really. Um, although the woke stuff is pushing in that direction in, in the Anglosphere, certainly. And in, in France, to the extent there's... Well, Macron is opposing these people, but they're trying right. to do it in France as well. But you're right, though, that the alternative... So if you if you went to high school in the 1950s in America you would learn an airbrushed version of American history that disregards atrocities and ethnic cleansing against Native Americans, for example. You would certainly learn that. Um, 
If you, if you went to school in the, in the South in the 1950s, you'd learn a version of, of, of slavery that disregarded the amount of concubinage, you know, what we now rightly consider rape of slaves by, uh, you know, Southern white guys, right? So we all do this and except kind of the Germans aren't doing it anymore. And, it, and we, and in the West, we're moving away from it too. So it, it is an interesting question. I'm not saying there's no analogy there. I just think, I do, I just do think genocide is distinct, but it is certainly true that in historical narratives um, of a country that they, countries tell themselves, they do um, tend to downplay and deny the ugliness. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, have you read the Bible? Um, I mean, I have, but not in a, not in a serious fashion. Well, I mean, you were aware in, in the first five books, uh, the, the people uh -huh. of Israel uh, yes. come into the promised land and God commands them to uh -huh. wipe out every the man. They, they, well, is that, is that right? Like the Amalekites or whatever, but is right, that but every single inhabitant of that land? Sure. They're commanded but is to that, slaughter. is that something that happened or is that, is this mythos or is it a little bit of truth? I don't, I no, just, we, I'm we not, have no I'm evidence not... that it happened, but I'm just thinking off the top of my head okay. from the, from the biblical description says it happened. I mean, is there any moral difference between the story well, is that, told in that the Bible happened and as what happened in World War II? No, there isn't. If that if that happened as described, but I don't. I again, I'd have to read more about ancient history and so on. But I, I no, it didn't happen. But that, the story says yeah. it did, so that's part of of okay. Jewish heritage. So many Jews don't want to know their history; they just want to know heritage, which is a a more pretty version of their history. And so the the the, the pretty beautiful story from our point of view is that God commanded us to go in there and slaughter everyone who lived there. And that's part of our <laughs> wonderful heritage. Well, I remember, I remember in, um, it is interesting you bring this up. I remember in, uh, when I went to a Christian school, uh, growing up, well, a Catholic school, from my father's side, I remember seeing the, reading the story about Egypt and getting very sad because I was thinking about my maternal relatives right. being killed by God in the plagues. That was like putting face on them, but I think so. I think I think we do um, we do do this quite naturally, and the West is not doing it anymore. But I think the question is: is the West flag self flagellating as opposed to whitewashing? And is there some middle ground? I don't know. These are these are moral questions and political questions that have to reflect on more. But you're certainly right. There's an analogy. I, I think there's an important difference, but I don't deny that there's an analogy too. The important difference is is genocide, but um, the analogy is real too. Of course, it's real. You, you're right. And and Germany. What another interesting point is Germany. The kind of white nationalist neo Nazi take on this is okay. So because they, they have a conspiratorial view of this, is that so the the after the Western the Allies came in, they propagandized the Germans and hating themselves. That's not true actually. In the 1950s, the Germans didn't hate themselves. They had a view that Hitler was an aberration. Uh, they were West Germany. They had a conservative society, relatively speaking. Hitler was an aberration. Um, World War II was Hitler's fault. World War I was not Germany's fault. Um, <clears throat> that was their, their view, more or less, um, that this madman had led us astray. It wasn't, an, it wasn't an honest view, because why was, of course, the, the, the question left out is why in 1940 was Hitler probably the most popular out of state in Europe? Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, the view was not self-flagellating in the 1950s in Germany. It became so over time, um, beginning with the sons and daughters of, of of the people who were involved in the Nazi regime, uh, repudiating them. It was a, a mixture of youthful rebellion 
and uh, moral consciousness, if you will, the 68er movement. So th that's one thing people don't understand that this, and it's interesting because the, the West did not, the United States Soviet Union did not impose this shame culture on Germany. Germans imposed it on themselves. Um, it, it actually emerges too. The, the idea that Germany was always horrible um, was a fringe view until uh, the publication of, of the works of Fritz Fischer, who's a historian who, who argued, um, I think very unconvincingly, that Germany was also responsible um, was also responsible for the First World War to the same extent that it was responsible for the Second World War, which was, kind, which was accepted um, by the 1950s. But it was also responsible for the First World War, and all of Germany had German history had been a special path, a Zonderweg, to Nazism. Yes, and this is actually the mainstream view in Germany now, and I don't, I don't which think it's ridiculous. very ridiculous. Which is it absolutely is. ridiculous. It's pretentious. It's actually pretentious. Yes. You think that it's like a teleological view. Yes. You think your country was on this unique course. And, and the scholarship of Fisher is very poor, by the way, to say, the, I, I agree. I'm totally normie on the Second World War. I'm happily normie because I believe it. But it was Germany's fault. It was about Hitler's cravings for Lebensraum, racism against Slavs, etc. I don't have any revisionist views on, on the origins of the Second World War. The First World War, though, uh, the Fisherite view is, is, quite, is quite dubious, really. And uh, he relies on misrepresentation of, of private correspondence. And, you know, but, but that's like the normative view in Germany, you know, still but today. It's so unhistorical. I mean, the, the Germans gave us historicism. And yes. you can't, and Zonderfeg, the idea that uh, people have, have an inevitable path to uh, World War II, the, the Germans and genocide, uh -huh. is, is just so un, unhistorical. Right. That, that Hitler would not have risen to power if the situation had been different. If, if right. a tweak here and a tweak there, you, you wouldn't yeah. have had a Holocaust. I mean, Germany had all sorts of incentives yeah. to launch a second world war, but there would not have been a Holocaust if Hitler hadn't been right. in power. So, so we, there was definitely going to be some kind of conflict and some kind of authoritarian society, almost certainly, but some kind of authoritarian right-wing government would have taken hold, but there's no reason that it would have, resembled Hitler's genocidal regime as opposed to Mussolini's Italy, for example. Right. And one can easily imagine a scenario where, uh, where uh, discrimination against the Jews takes hold. An authoritarian right-wing regime, right-wing populist regime, takes power in the 1930s in Germany, but there isn't any kind of extermination or even expulsion of Jews. There's merely discrimination. The, the, the idea that this is some kind of historical inevitability it strikes me as silly and in an odd way, kind of pretentious. Right. <laughs> but this is the normative view in Germany. And descending from this is very politically incorrect. So um, on the other hand, Austria has a different way of dealing with this. Austria just pretends they, they're not, they never have been German, which is very strange. But that's just like, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there's this notion of an Austrian ethnicity that didn't exist, certainly in during the 1940s, you know where it was an alternative German state, but a German state, right? The people who supported Austrian independence, like Schuschnigg, the, the Austro-fascists, they didn't want to unite with Germany, but it wasn't because they said, we're not German. It was, we're a better Germany. We're a different Germany, you know? But now that the Austrian kind of cope is, because they don't want to be like self-hating like the Germans, is no, we're not, we're not, um, <laughs> we were victims of the Anschluss and we're not Germans, you know? It's kind of worked, actually. People don't, I think a lot of people don't see them as German anymore. Right. What works for, is usually more important than what's true. Right. Yeah.
Uh, are, you, are you a religious man? I'm not. No, I oh, went okay. to. Um, I, I went. I, I think I have more of my of my ancestral religions. I have more sympathy emotionally, more emotional resonance for Coptic Orthodoxy, my mother's religion, than my father's uh, Catholicism. Um, how he became a Catholic of English descent is another interesting story, but uh, but. I think the um, child molestation thing with the church, uh, in addition to intellectually not believing in God, which I just can't find a way to believe in God intellectually, and I'd be interested to hear what your trajectory was, but I can't find a way to believe in God intellectually. But I also lost a lot of kind of my sentimentality for the Catholic church because of like all the, okay, like people who have sex with children shouldn't be reported to the authorities, but should be like transferred to a school for the disabled type stuff, you know? I mean, that seems like really outrageous. And I don't know of any institution. I don't think most social institutions as corrupt as they are would actually behave like that. So it just gave me a very negative taste with the Catholic church, the, uh, not just the molestation, but like the cover up. I think is worse because you, you can't know the thoughts and behavior of everybody in your employ, but to actually to have your impulse be okay. Let's make sure you go to a school for the hard of hearing in um latin america <laughs> it's like who the fuck are these people you know what are they like are these like devils demons uh, why would what, what kind of person has an impulse to do that so i think like the child molestation stuff turned me off of the catholic church a coptic church i have more uh sentimental relation for i went to my uh, grandmother's funeral uh last year and i i, I did feel a connection to the community, the Coptic Egyptian community, but I can't believe in it. And I think, uh, I think you have to believe in it intellectually before you can truly be a member of the religion. I think it's rather hollow to attend church while not believing in it. Now, what do you think of all that? And, and, and tell me how you became, you're Jewish. Tell me right. what your spiritual journey was like. Okay. I, I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist. My father was a theologian. Mm. He had two PhDs. So I got a fairly intellectual approach to religion. But when you start trying to rationalize religion, you start accepting you know, some degree of the higher criticism, which simply asks, you know, when were these texts written? Who wrote them? And for what audience? What was the context? What was the sitsum labum? Uh, so I, I was aware of that. But uh, eventually those, those rationalizing, secularizing effects of, of trying, to, trying to make your religion rational, it, the inevitable result is that it starts to lead the, the next generation out of the church. Then I had a, a crisis. My life fell apart. I got basically sick for six years. I was basically bedridden in my 20s. And so I could mm -hmm. not face life on a secular atheist perspective anymore mm. when I was bedridden. So while I was bedridden, I formed an attachment to a radio talk show host named Dennis Prager. And he was like my lifeline to sanity. Like his show and his thinking kind of gave me the strength to carry on. Like, oh, I'm going to become a good person and I'm going to articulate ethical monotheism. And, and here's, you know, here's an approach that works and is, is good and it makes the world a better place. And so it's like, oh, I just became fascinated by Judaism. It's like, I'm going to convert to Judaism. You know, here is, you know, divine truth and eventually converted to Orthodox Judaism, and I just absolutely loved it. One reason I love it is that it's primarily a behavioral uh, way of life rather than a religion with a lot of things that you need to believe. So I never had a rabbi ask me what I, what I believe about God. So I love, I love the tribe. 
that, that I've joined. Mm. But any if if one has any religious faith, it is you know tremendously challenged by secular scholarship. So that's why I, I brought it up. So mm -hmm. if one's a Christian or one's an Orthodox Jew or an Orthodox Muslim, you are believing in things that uh, secular scholarship shreds. Yes. Like all the fundamental claims of traditional Judaism, traditional Christianity, and traditional uh, Islam do not stand up to modern scholarship. Does that does that torment you, Luke? Not does at that... all, because I belong to a tribe, and what you believe doesn't matter. Here, here's a question. So I, I've, you know, I had a, a couple of Jewish friends in high school, but I have had very little interaction with Jews. A personal level overall, which is kind of funny because I attended prestigious universities, but I guess I was a bit of a loner. So I didn't, there were a lot of Jews at the University of Chicago where I was at. So, but I didn't form any close relationships with any Jewish people. Um, but so I don't know much about Judaism. Does, do you feel included or, or do you feel like you're, because you have the religious belief and commitment or do you feel excluded because you're not of ethnic Jewish origin? I'm asking, I have no idea what the answer to this is, but I'm yeah, and I have not posited any belief. I'm, I would never publicly deny any of the beliefs of, of my religion, but I haven't posited to you that I hold any. Sure. Okay. Because, Fair enough. Yeah. Because for me, this is primarily an experiential tribal connection. And so, you know, mm -hmm. my beliefs may wax or wane in any different directions, but it's absolutely irrelevant to how I live my life and, I've never had a rabbi ask me how I believe about God. And I have found that I've been treated by Jews according to my deeds. So some Jews love me, some Jews hate me, some Jews despise me. Only like one Jew has ever said, oh, you're not Jewish. So um, I- Only I one Jew in, has ever said because of the ethnic component, you're not Jewish, okay. Yeah, one Jew in, uh, in 40 years, in, in Judea 35 mm -hmm. years in Judaism has ever said that. So. I get treated according to according to the quality of my deeds, which are decidedly mixed. I'm not a particularly righteous person with a with a pristine past, but I, I can't think of any. For so many people think, oh, you're not accepted. You know, that's the thing that I do when I do these live streams. All sorts of people say you can't convert to Judaism. It's a delusion. You'll never be accepted. And so my challenge is always give me a concrete behavioral test that will show whether or not I'm accepted, because I am unaware of any behavioral test, which would show I'm not accepted. I have been set up for shadukim, meaning uh, for, for courtship and marriage. I have you know, had Jewish children to drive to school and back. I have played all sorts of voluntary roles in the community in sensitive areas. I am invited to people's homes for Shabbat and Jewish holidays. People have gotten me mm -hmm. jobs. I don't know any behavioral test where it would evidence that I am not accepted. I'm, I'm open to it. Like I have been mm -hmm. thrown out of synagogues, but not because I wasn't Jewish, but because my inflammatory writing, you know, online uh, had uh, disturbed the, the community. So again, it was yeah. according to my deeds. So I don't know a behavioral test that would, that would evidence, hey, I'm not accepted because I have felt accepted according to the quality of who I am and, and how I'm behaving, which means some mm -hmm. people have had, you know, very good reason to keep their distance from me. And some people have absolutely loved me and plenty of people have been indifferent to me, just like the whole realm of reactions to me that I got when I was a Seventh-day Adventist or an atheist. So you invoke your your past. And I, I, I have read about you before um, because you're, you're an interesting figure. And I read about you actually, I read your Wikipedia page before 
this uh, interview. And so were you involved in the, and I, I'm not asking this in a moralistic sense. No, that's sense. fine. Just Actually, go ahead and just, ask me. Yeah. yeah. So are you, were, you were involved in the pornography industry, right? Yeah. I read a blog about the porn industry and I wrote three books on the porn industry. Okay. So were you, were you like part of the porn industry or were you uh, writing, just write, commentating on it? I, I always felt apart. But again, it's all a matter of perspective. From a certain angle, you could say, oh, he's, he's part of the industry. I never felt like I was part of the industry. I always okay. felt, felt apart. But okay, I, interesting. I, was, I, was, I, I actually brush. thought if you were part of the industry, I was going to ask you questions like what, some questions about did you feel like it was wrong or did you feel like this is just, well, yeah, okay, actually I'll just ask, ask you. Ask me though, anyway. Even, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Do, so do I did feel you, that pornography is wrong? Feel, because I can see two, there are two perspectives on this. There's a libertarian perspective that's like, this is what people do with their bodies. Like the state shouldn't maybe make, well, libertarians are not the state, but like, you know, in a broad sense, libertarian perspective, the state should make sure people aren't being forced into it, of course, or hurt. But like, if people, adults choose to do this, you know, who cares? It's, it, we're just getting, uh, we're being, we're pearl clutching about this and we're um, denying a basic human impulse and we're moralizing where we shouldn't be. The other perspective is of course, that this is, this is detrimental to the soul um, in the broad sense, and that this is somehow demeaning of of human beings in a you know in a in a sense that um, is very sad, actually. And and what what was your perspective at the time? Was it more was it one of these two, or was it something else? Did you were you morally conflicted, or did you kind of have the libertarian view that this isn't something to be concerned about morally? I think I had both views, but the more time I spent in the industry, the more I tilted to the negative view of the industry. Mm -hmm. So I try to maintain a you know, fairly open mind on most issues and just try to understand different different perspectives rather than coming to you know ultimate moral conclusions. But yeah, the more time I spend steadily, as months go by, I just became more and more negative about the industry and, and seeing its uh, mm -hmm. potential for you know, damage. Yeah, but I, so, I didn't feel I, I never felt inclined to you know be a cr crusader against it. Uh, I'm much more interested uh -huh. in interviewing people and talking to people like I yeah. am with you than than yeah, me too. I, moralism. I mean, there there is virtue signaling in this sphere. I, I, I I'm not saying the arguments against pornography are frivolous. Far from it. But I do think there is virtue signaling in a sphere because if you look at the percentage of men who have consumed pornography, like it, it, just sex work generally. I mean, so. Most, I, I think in the contemporary West, you know, the vast majority of men probably have never gone to a prostitute. Maybe that's wrong, but, but like the vast majority of men have consumed some kind of sex work, whether you're talking about a strip club or pornography, it's virtually everybody, you know, the, with pornography specifically, a strip club, probably majority. I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly a lot. So it's it, the, the, the discourse on this, these matters maybe they should be condemned, but if they, if they are to be condemned, we need to kind of say we're all in this together because we've all subsidized this industry, right? Yeah. As men. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if there's somebody who's never watched porn, I salute you, but. Right. Um, <laughs> to those but, who have never watched. I yeah. But you. I feel like there's a lot of lying in this and, and, yeah. and I'm sorry, but if you've watched porn, this is a, a somebody who was advocating the sex work position. And I was uh, skeptical of it. Uh, made this point to me a few years ago, and I, I have to admit I was impressed by it. Like, if you have consumed, been to a strip club or consumed porn, even if you've never, like, seen a prostitute, you've consumed sex work. And that's just true. It's true. Like, you have consumed 
sex work and in some sense supported the sex work industry if you have viewed porn. Um, so uh, have you heard of E. Michael Jones? Um, I've heard of him, but I've never, um, I've never really followed his content. Okay, I, his I, I alerted him to the JQ. He never even knew that there was a JQ, but he stumbled upon my writings on the porn industry. And when I was uh -huh. writing on the porn industry, I read a great deal about Jews in the porn industry. And he had no okay. idea. And so he stumbled onto my work. Oh, so that's, that's, the, that's why he doesn't like Jews. E. I know Jones. he doesn't like Jews. So he doesn't well, like he, Jews. He, 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 he didn't have any stronger feelings till he read my blog. And well, I don't feel bad about, about it. Like, I, I just, my job was to tell the truth. So if he really reads, reads so, the truth and becomes red-pilled about Jews, why, like, but, that's on him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 that's bizarre. It is, it is humorous. I just, I, I have to say, I find the JQ discourse completely un, unpersuasive, honestly. I mean, I know, like, if you said, oh, it's persuasive, you you get in trouble. So it is something people have to lie about, but I don't have to lie about it because I think it's it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, the discourse from, like, uh, Kevin McDonald or the TRS people, I mean... And I, I have no sympathy for Israel. Actually, my, my, um, I had, I had, a, I, had I had family members who fought against Israel in the, uh, in the Six Days War. So I, I have no sympathy for Israel as a political institution. Um, and I actually think they should share the land. I think that they should have one state and share the land. I mean, I'm not. Obviously, what should happen? What, what, you have to look at pragmatic considerations. What is doable? But the moral solution would be for them to share the land the Jews and the Palestinians and have a one state, probably multi-confessional polity, like maybe Lebanon would be a model even. But so I don't have sympathy for Israel, but I don't like the idea that Jews are responsible for all these things. It just seems like breathless rather than, um, rather than scholarly, you know, like it, take, take one issue that they say is Jews are responsible for pedophilia. Well, I mean, look at the, look at, um, that I hate to say it, but because I, I don't have sympathy for the left nowadays, but, the feminist movement in the 19th century was behind raising the age of consent in the United States from 10, 11, 12 appallingly low levels in states, disgusting, to um, similar what we have today. So this was a left-wing feminist movement fighting Christian patriarchy, which had basically normalized pedophilia and had for generations. The Catholic Church had an age of consent of 12, age of marriage, I think, of seven. So let's say Jews were behind this. So this was like an enlightenment very good enlightenment insight that fucking kids is is evil because kids don't have the autonomy to to consent but then they say jews did it i mean what it's just it doesn't it doesn't relate to the history of like how we developed norm stigmatizing pedophilia at all i mean and they, they say jews did, so it just seems and then like the issue that jews are so ethnocentric the, the, the mayor, Nathan Kofnitz points out the marriage rates are so high between Jews and non-Jews. I mean, that's a pretty good indication of whether you're super ethnocentric, right? Yeah. I mean, now, I like you know, like, you say, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, said, so, I like how you say you have no sympathy for Israel because that's so honest and, and that's how the world works. Like our two peoples, you know, I don't know a lot about your peoples, but I understand there's some Egyptian background, you know, have a fundamental conflict of interest. I have spent zero time being concerned about Arab suffering and Arabs have suffered a tremendous amount, but I only have so much emotional energy and I primarily direct my emotional energy towards my, my own people. So mm -hmm. Arabs have suffered, Muslims have suffered. There was the Nakba, 
Uh, tens of thousands of, of Palestinians were, were Arabs were expelled from the from the nascent uh, state state of Israel, and I don't care. Which is, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I'm glad that you said you don't care either. Like it's it's it would be unrealistic for for me to care. That would be highly abnormal. It would be virtue signaling. That's why I, I am not shocked or bothered by Holocaust denial, and it doesn't bother me. If if uh, Arabs, uh, uh, you know, selling Holocaust denial in, in shocks, and it doesn't bother me if if the Arabs want to destroy the Jewish state, it, I would consider it weird if they didn't. They've got mm-hmm. a Jewish state in their midst, which is far higher achieving, which is far more powerful, you know, which is far more you know proud and influential in in the world, and and by comparison, you know, they look bad and they must feel bad because you know they feel mm. this land belongs to them i i wouldn't understand any arab muslim reaction short of wanting to destroy the the jewish state mm-hmm. of israel because that's the only authentic one if i was living in an area where an outside group had taken my land and then their economy booms they're publishing books and, and mm-hmm. technical papers that are changing the world that they have strong influence over the most powerful nation in the world the united states of america now I would, I would be very, uh, very angry to, towards the mm-hmm. Jewish state. So I, I just look. I like the, so I like the honesty. <laughs> well, first the the, like my my specific heritage is is Coptic Egyptian. So, Chris, Coptic Egyptians, I would say to just to generalize, I think this is a fair generalization. I have enough experience with them. Um, Christian, Chris, they don't identify as Arabs, Coptic Egyptians, although some do, but most don't. But Regardless, Christian Arabs, Christian Middle Easterners, if we want to use that term, I mean, in, Christians in Arab countries, let's say, because I don't know about Armenians, really. I don't know much about them. But Christians in Middle Eastern countries are very largely anti-Israel. But if you look at Copts, their sympathy for, like, the cause, if you will, right, the cause, is a little bit muted, not because of any affinity for Israel, but because of um, – they've been treated very badly by the Muslims in Egypt in a way that, for example – the Jordanian Muslims do not treat Jordanian Christians like this, right? So that kind of mutes a little bit the sympathy for the cause. So maybe, because I was very close to my maternal grandparents um, who were very, my mom was an immigrant too, but she was more westernized. My maternal grandparents were very (laughs) Egyptian, you could say. Um, But, you know, there is a little bit of a, there isn't sympathy for Israel with most cops, but there's a little bit of a, conflict they they're not as full-throated in in the cause if you will the the palestinian cause as muslims would be because of their own treatment at the hands right of, right of, christianity of, is being wiped out in the middle east right. well it depends on where you're talking like like jordan i think christians have a pretty favorable view generally of of their muslim countrymen but if you look at egypt no it's very the treatment's very bad and um that that complicates things but they're not there's this meme, though, that uh, there was a neocon meme a while ago that the, there's somehow this unity of interest with Israel and Christian Arabs, Arab populations. And that's quite, uh, quite dishonest. There, there's, there's, you don't find sympathy for Israel. I mean, the only people like you have like Janine Pirro, who uh, she she was Lebanese and I think she she take, took her husband's name or something. But she's a Lebanese Christian, Fox News late. Like, yeah, she loves Israel, but. That's kind of a Western thing where you come to the West and you're a Middle Eastern Christian, then you become really pro-Israel. It's kind of a, this is maybe a little anachronistic because there's so much non-white, non-European immigration that Middle Eastern Christians are probably not going to stick out that much. But back in the day when they, they did, I think that support for Israel actually was, or at least 
virtue signaling about support for Israel was a way of fitting in and saying, we're not Muslims. I, I think that's probably changed. But I think back in the day, and maybe Janine Pirro being an older lady <laughs> is a residue of that. Um, Just following incentives. I, like if you want to... It's yeah, yeah, career right. Fox News to be, well, I mean, yeah, the, the most absurd thing of following in science is this cultural appropriation discourse. Oh, yeah. That is the most, that is totally fake. There is nobody in Egypt who gives a shit if a white guy wears a galabea, like a, um, you know, like the garb. My, my grandfather actually gave it to me. Um, his, like, um, like it's just like, a, you know, like a, a certain uh, ethnic garb associated with Middle Eastern people, especially. No one cares. The idea that this is, so this is a totally manufactured discourse. That's an example of one that's just pure fake, which actually kind of disturbs me that people, because you have like kids of immigrants making this up when there's no one from the actual culture who's offended. And they're using the fact that they are of this ethnic heritage to uh, grift, essentially. I mean, the cultural appropriation discourse is totally fake, totally fake. Um, so I, I want to want to just uh, present a, a major worldview difference between us, as I understand it. I believe that you're a classical liberal, that you believe that individuals uh -huh. are born into the world with rights. And I, I'm a nationalist. Well, I, I believe we should say that. I'm not saying I believe that as a matter of nature, but I believe we should, we should, uh, that, that's the ideology we should uh, adhere to. Yeah, go ahead, though, Luke. Right. So, yeah, I, I get that because it, it makes for you know, liberal societies uh, the, the most mm -hmm. pleasant to live in. I mean, you have more more assurance of your rights in, in a liberal society. Uh, I understand the world primarily in, in tribal national terms that whatever rights can be afforded can vary under a circumstance. And so I, I think primarily in terms of, of nation or, or tribe and your, the responsibilities back and forth rather than individuals being born with rights. I think of nations and people belonging to a nation or a tribe. So I'm just curious, speaking of human rights, what do you think about the concept of the Nuremberg trial of putting Nazi, very Nazi leaders on trial for mm -hmm. violating these invented universal human rights? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, I want to clarify that I, I agree they're invented. They're, they're very new and they go against historical norms. So I'm not defending a claim that this is uh, some seminal part of the human character acknowledging human rights. It surely is not. Um, if you're looking at what comes more naturally to humans, I think your view is much more natural than mine. If you just, and that's just based on the historical data that your view is practiced far more in history, right? Mine is new. Um, so I agree with that part. In terms of neurom, I, I just think it's a morally superior view. I think it leads to people being treated better. Uh, I think it leads to less exploitation of the other of guest workers, let's say, like they're not, they used, to, you know, in societies that are less liberal, guest workers are indentured, right? If you look at Japan or the United Arab Emirates, uh, I think slavery is a little bit hyperbole, but like people come and they have to like give up their passport and then uh, they, they have to buy it back, you know, over work. So they're essentially indentured. It's very cruel treatment of people. They can't leave until they make a certain amount of money. So they're you know, you could, some people call it slavery. I think there's important differences when you're voluntarily going somewhere um, and you're making money, but but it's terrible. Regardless, slavery, we can call it, we can call it indenture. Uh, that doesn't happen in the West because we believe in liberalism. It used to happen. Indenture was very common in the early United States, indentured labor, but in addition to slavery, of course, but we don't do that. And I think that's good. I think treating the other with kindness and respect is a good thing. And that doesn't come naturally to us. We need to cultivate that. But we, I think we have some impulse of kindness and compassion. I think 
almost all of us do. And we, the, the, the key is to cultivate it because I think our other impulses of tribalism and selfishness are much stronger. So the key is to cultivate that. And I think these notions of human rights, very new, as you say, uh, do that. They cultivate this part of us that um, I think is more noble, is better. You know, that's my moral view. In terms of Nuremberg, I think the core problem with Nuremberg is uh, my view of legal, of law, is is not something, is not natural. I don't believe in natural law, right? I believe law is codified and written. And the problem with the Nuremberg trials is the law was all essentially invented. So I understand the impulse for accountability for, for bringing back slavery to Europe. These fuckers brought back slavery. They didn't just exterminate Jews. One thing they didn't talk about very much is the enslavement of people, including, uh, for racial reasons, Slavs. Huge numbers of Slavs, uh, Poles were kidnapped and enslaved because they were deemed to be racially inferior by the Nazis. It's a strange thing that the people who enslaved white people are liked by the alt-right and the Whig Nats. It's very strange. But regardless, you know, when you call it law, you're kind of making it up, aren't you? Yes. Right? So there is something in Nuremberg that is intrinsically illegitimate. And you wonder, like, you, you want to say to these people, okay, have the guts to kill them or let them, what I'd say is have the courage to either kill them or let them free. If you think they're just monsters, and I agree that many of these people were monsters, uh, not all of them, not all the defendants were, but many of the defendants were monsters, just kill them or let them go. Have the courage to do one of those two things. Don't lie to yourself that you're, uh, you're adopting some kind of, you recourse, because, you know, when we, let's say somebody commits a crime and I call the police, right? I'm in a sense letting myself off the hook, right? I, because I, I not, so I see someone committing a crime, let's say beating up an old lady and I call the mm -hmm. cops and I get them arrested. So I'm letting myself off the hook, right? In a sense, because I'm not saying I'm going to kill them. And, and, and that would be some moral decision of some import. And I'm also not saying I'm going to do nothing about it, which would, which may torment my conscience as well, because it's a terrible thing I'm letting go. So I'm basically deferring to another authority. That authority is real. I'm acting properly if I do that. But I feel like they didn't have the courage to kill the guy who was beating up the old lady themselves. And so they, and they wanted to call the police, but there were no police. There were no laws, right? So they invented laws and pretended they were, they were, um, they were invoking the law when in fact they just, they wanted to, to punish these people. They wanted to cage them. They wanted to kill them. And I think it was arbitrary in a show trial, essentially. I don't think that the, I don't agree with the neo-Nazis that they faked evidence or whatever, but I think it was a show trial because it wasn't law, right? Law is codified. Right. right. They invented these, these laws that the, the Nazis mm -hmm. you know, conspired in a crime against peace. <laughs> I mean, it's. And just taking the courage to say, I'm going to go kill these people. Yeah. I would respect that position more than pretending that there's a law prohibiting crimes against humanity. There's a law like against waging law war, you know, or... right. Raging oppressive war and enforced by the, by the, you know, Herman Gerg, who was actually very high IQ. And I would have liked to converse with him. I mean, he's a strange figure, very intelligent, very indolent. I mean, the guy, the guy got like fatter during the war. Right. Yeah. I mean, how, how is that even possible? Uh, but he highly, I think his IQ was nearly 140 or around 140 when they, when the Americans tested him. But, um, just have the balls to kill Gurk or have the balls to let him go. Don't, I feel like pretending there was law is a succession of responsibility. Yeah. And 
also this is a like, problem with liberalism often in general. It's like, oh, we're no, just but why couldn't they have just said, I'm not against the concept of prohibiting these things. I think after the war, they should have said, we need to have a body of international law prohibiting uh, many of the things that the Nazis did in a legally um, comprehensible and specific way. Um, I think that there should have been a movement to codify law, not a movement, but instead they pretended that <laughs> this was illegal because of, you know, like, I guess Robert Jackson uh, can discern the natural law or whatever. So, yeah, there was something phony about the whole thing. And what do you think and about putting that... Stryker to death just for his opinions? Because Julius Stryker didn't kill anyone. He just well, wrote again, some like, nasty things. It's it's really, it's really kind of, this is free speech in the most extreme yes. way. Because not only is he, now, if Julius, if, 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 if Julius Stryker were in America, should his opinions be protected today? Should his opinions be protected? Yeah, that's easy. Like, if you believe in free speech, they should be. Um, that's not even close. In in Nazi Germany, my God, I mean, because he's, he, he's encouraging these views while genocide is going on. He's referring to the genocide going on and condoning it. On the other hand, he's not personally doing anything other than expressing views, right? Right. He's not actually, it's like if somebody went on the internet today, this is a little less extreme case, I mean, and, and condone some kind of atrocity the Chinese are committing or whatever. I mean, that person's opinion, I, I would say, should be legally protected. Um, I, look, here's my view. If uh, under, uh, if you're if you're going to have a body of law that is protective of free speech, it's very difficult to justify convicting him of anything. On the other hand, if somebody had just killed him, I wouldn't. I wouldn't totally against that person in a moral level, but I would, uh, I would not promote a law under which an individual who expressed these views would be criminalized. Um, you could say, and again, like what, what, what is the, the legalistic rationale for going after him? It's all arbitrary, right? Yeah. Because there's no law here. Yeah. So. And uh, what's Oh, your... interestingly, Stryker, speaking of Stryker, by the way, of Eric Stryker, if you're listening to this, we're talking about Julius Stryker, not you. <laughs> so um, uh, Stryker had this had a vast pornography collection that uh, was uncovered when his, his, his private papers were raided by the Allies. And he claimed this was about studying uh, the machinations of the internal Jew because the Jew's behind pornography. So he needed to watch all these things. <laughs> so. so according to Wikipedia... Uh, Stryker had an IQ of 106, the lowest among the defendants. Yeah, he was not intelligent, man. He, in fact, he, uh, the, the other defendants, um, including Goering, so I wouldn't call Goering bourgeois. Goering was smart. He wasn't bourgeois. He was a kind of a uh, pirate, you could say, um, um, a bandit, you could say. Um, but the more bourgeois uh, defendants like Speer and also the more intelligent ones, simply like Goering, had contempt for Stryker. I mean, that's kind of funny if Eric Stryker named, I don't know if he did, but if he named himself after this guy, like the Nazis really didn't like him other than Hitler. The, the reason the guy was able to keep publishing was because Hitler had a soft spot for him and he liked, I guess he liked their Sturmer. But um, the vast majority of upper echelon Nazis thought this was pornographic and vulgar and stupid. It's just like, um, <laughs> it, it's just Isaac drooling over Rapunzel and, you know, raping her or whatever. I mean, it's, <laughs> Always this kind of thing, right? And uh, what's your do? You, do you have a PhD thesis topic yet? Uh, my my, uh, I I do. I'm going to be looking at the uh, wartime 
propaganda by the Germans directed at Arabs and Arab nationalist movements um, during the um, uh, during the war in North Africa. The um, especially the Arabs, uh, pardon me, the Germans um, sought to enlist um, spontaneous Arab uprisings in their cause against the the British mm-hmm. in the Middle East, and they created propaganda to this effect to try to ensure the Muslims they had respect for the, the Arabs they had respect for the Islamic religion that they didn't regard them as racially inferior because that was a fear right that was a fear in in the region that we're going to be treated badly by the Germans because of their racial views. And also they enlisted um, uh, certain intellectuals and leaders in the Arab world to try to win them over to their cause. So I'm trying to write about the reaction in Arab intellectual life and newspapers and nationalist movements to these overtures by the Nazis. I think the reaction was quite ambiguous. I think there were, uh, maybe I'll change my views as I do more research, but I think there were people who were sympathetic, people who weren't. I think overall there was um, a lot, there was a lot of fear that couldn't be assuaged that at bottom, they're going to oppress us racially. On the other hand, there were there were definitely sympathies to the Nazis, and not only because of, um, of British domination and French domination of the region, but because there was a sense that Germany was the underdog, you know. Uh, Hitler had kind of postured Germany as the underdog, and that appealed to, uh, since the tr- because of the Treaty of Versailles and the defeat of the First World War, that, that is, this appealed to um, some third world movements. So uh, there was, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on Hindu fascism and the, the Nazi fetishism in India? Have you paid much uh, attention? I know, very, I know very little about that, but, but maybe you could share a little bit about that with me. I know a lot about the like, Arab movements that were uh, sympathetic, but like the young Egyptians, but I don't know about the Hindu stuff. Tell me about that. It sounds interesting. I Go don't ahead. know much, but there is quite a bit of fascism that is... Mm-hmm. It's a reaction to liberalism. As, as that's Paul Gottfried's, I think... Uh, Oh yes, yes, yes. But, leftism, but yeah. It it uh, it it taps into some basic human impulses, and so for in the Anglo world, the, the Nazis are regarded as the epitome of evil. But for the rest of the world, the Nazis and Hitler are regarded just as people who lost a war, and so there there is that's true to some extent. Yeah, I agree. Go ahead, keep going. Yeah, so it's just interesting in. In you know all all around the world, you'll you'll find segments here or there who who are excited by by various iterations of, of fascism because it does meet some basic human needs for like in a world that that maybe like you feel is is spinning out of control uh, that that fascism brings the people together and so uh, I can understand I don't know much about Hindu fascism but. It, completely makes sense to me that there'd be various groups at various times in various situations who would have a fascistic impulse. I think it makes, is completely understandable. My view at least of, um, of uh, <clears throat> wartime Arab fascism and, and also in the post-war era is that to some extent, this is more performative and aesthetic and a way of saying fuck you to the West than it is like a comprehensive anti-liberal movement. Yeah. Um, in terms of the Europe, I don't know enough about South Asia really to say anything, but there is certainly, uh, there is a certain popularity of fascist aesthetics and Nazi aesthetics even in the, in the MENA region. There's no question about that, but I think it's more aesthetic than ideological because you find people who associate with the, with the young Egyptians party, for example, that <laughs> had liberal views, right? 
you know, it, so it's, I feel like it's more anti-Western in this in the case of the Arab world than, than anti-liberal in a fundamental sense, you know, um, but fascism generally was a reaction to liberalism and leftism, certainly. And fascism is an interesting movement because it's the first time a right-wing movement, as Godfrey points out, a right-wing movement actually gets support from the working class. It isn't just associated with wealthy people, you know, and, and, and the bourgeois, not just wealthy, but the bourgeois. Which is interesting because the Republican Party and the Tory Party in England are now increasingly the party of the yeah. working class. No, actually, if they look back, I mean, you can't really say this because... Um, it, you'll get attacked by both, uh, you know, get, the right will hate you for saying this because it sounds like you're calling them Nazis because people say fascism is, which it isn't, by the way, but they conflate fascism and Nazism, as Gottfried says. And, um, but it is true that the first right-wing populist movements that got a significant popular following were fascistic. Um, popular. Hey, I, I, I've got to um, go. I'm, I just realized it's it's sure. Shabbat, so I'm I'm so sorry. Oh, Let's okay. continue another another time. Good. Yeah, to talk yeah. To you. I'm, I'm again. I'm sorry about the delay earlier. Yeah, no worries. It was really fun talking. To I got to run off. Take care, man. Take bye care. Bye. -bye.